Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looting Hour, episode 119. As always, joined by the three amigos, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, new black shirt, Rich Diaz, PGM Global. What's going on? Rich? Me? I'm I'm sick. <laughs> womp, womp, womp. I'm a little under the weather, boys. Um, that's got the it. sixth booster, buddy. No, I got, I got my 12th booster and, uh, it's, it just seemed it didn't work, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. It's just, I'm just being a baby. I'm just a little, don't worry. You guys are going to turn my frown upside down. I'm ready to go. Lots of don't fun worry. stuff to talk about. As always, Keith and I will carry the show. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, carry me over the finish line. And if I, if I cough everybody, I apologize. I'm, I'm actually taking these medicated strep cells, which I brought for my mom. There was a point in my mother's life. I think she was, she may have been addicted to strep cells that I brought from England that are medicated. Don't tell her I said that, but anyways, they're amazing. I think they make my tongue numb. Anyway, there you go. That's the story. This episode brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, were people actually around. wearing masks on zoom calls during the pandemic they were. yeah that was very stupid <clears throat> yeah yeah apologize Look, I, for i coughing. never get hey i never get to introduce the guest so today i'm going to jump the gun and introduce okay. our guest today and uh this guy he's very well known um in the u.s and professional football circles and world a rock star from University of Iowa. He actually founded his own university called the Tight End University. And uh, he's leading the 49ers into the playoffs this week against the Green Bay Packers. So here he is, everyone. We have my uh, George Kittle action figure here. Uh, so if you're listening, you can't see. I Yeah, I'm you know a bit older, but I still like the action figures. Rich, when I was a kid, I had the Star Wars action figures. Oh, man. Did you, did you guys have those? I know I'm too young. You're too, too young. young. You Steve? In school. Both of you. Maybe, maybe I, I was the bully. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, this is a football weekend. Playoffs are starting. And uh, it's a lot of... every time you make predictions, they lose. Yeah, no, it's, you know, football, you know, anything can happen. But um, yeah, like the Dallas know, Cowboys can lose. <laughs> yeah, the deck is really stacked <laughs> against Green Bay for this one. For uh, like for the rest, 
the 49ers had and, and everything. So you always try, like say, say you're managing a portfolio, looking at the economy and stuff. You try to identify where's the weakness, where are the strengths. And Green Bay is not that strong in the middle of the field. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll attack those linebackers. But Mrs. Icecap is ready. We'll have some good food going and drinks. Saturday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. See you there. See, See you there. there with George Kittle. There we go. George Kittle. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, back to the regularly there. scheduled program. Is that next? Yeah, it's- Steve, what's all that white stuff behind you? Yeah, we got a foot of snow in Vancouver, and and the the cold snap is is gripping the West here. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's been cold. It's been cold in Alberta. Calgary was down to like minus forty, minus forty five. I actually had like an appliance delivery to like one of my rental properties, and they're like, "Oh, we got to come back." Like. We can't fit the appliances through the door, and it's too cold for us to unscrew the door. So, we'll uh, we'll have to come back, anyways. So, which leads to the next uh, conversation. We've you know we've talked a lot about the electric vehicles, uh, the mandates for twenty thirty five, and um, it turns out the EVs are not working so well in uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan right now. Shock. <laughs> Well, it's Sorry, really interesting because, you know, we, we've been talking about this theme for a while and, you know, how our the, the conversation that we wanted to have was that it didn't make quite sense from a global perspective. So even if Canada, like, completely turned off the lights, we would have a little impact on, on the globe in terms of carbon emissions and, and stuff like that. But yet we're going very aggressive down that path. And now all of a sudden we get a two day or three day uh, period with, with it's cold, man. It's cold. Yeah. Like extreme like cold. Week. Okay. A week then now we're struggling, whatever. It's been a few days. Right. And uh, <laughs> you guys are but such now, babies. <laughs> yeah. Big baby. <laughs> like Rich is sick as a dog there and he's not whining and complaining. Well, in Quebec, we're, we're used to it in Quebec. Anyway, keep going. I know. Like Steve there in Kitslano and he has some snow on <laughs> stuff like that. But it's it's really interesting because all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, everyone across the country, if you're following the story, you realize that, oh, wow, the contribution to the grid from wind and I guess the, to a little degree solar, it actually I don't know, did it go to zero rich or had very little impact? And then increasingly more people are turning on their heat pumps and whatever else they need to try to keep the, the place warm. So is it correct to say that the, the BC grid got overwhelmed and then they had to buy from Alberta, which overwhelmed no. their grid? Other other way around. So BC's grid has been totally fine. Um, it's been, I think we've been sending some of the power, excess power over to Alberta. So their grid's been under under stress. They've actually been encouraging people to kind of be conscious of, you know, hey, don't run your washer dryer machine right now. It's you know delay your like so you know they're having to be extra conscious. They hit a um, all time record high in terms of uh, power usage on the grid. Uh, so uh, set a new record for peak demand at twelve thousand three hundred eighty four megawatts. Uh, Alberta has a wind fleet of 4,400 megawatts, and that was uh, essentially emitting zero power uh, during this entire time. And the solar was effectively non-existent as well. So they just had, as you know, our conversation with Doomberg, uh, unfortunately for Albertans, when, when it hit minus 40, the the, uh, the wind and the solar was essentially 
non-existent uh, at a time when you needed it most. So um, didn't produce the reliability that um, many people would certainly appreciate. And so, yeah, I mean, this is coming full circle to the conversations we've had in this channel. Um, Hope is a bad strategy to quote uh, dear Keith Dicker. Um, and I think a lot of this um, renewable energy stuff, um, you know, it's just is that that's what it is. You're hoping that in the coldest months in a very inhospitable climate, uh, right? Just to quote Doomberg again, where he said, you know, we're basically fighting against entropy. And that's what it is to live in northern climate. Um, and unless you're going to do that with skill and technical ability and and to have to do that also with the realization that, you know, even some of these, by the way, these windmills, I didn't know this, this is actually kind of a cool, cool fact. A lot of these windmills are actually heated. So, you know, you know, we can be critical of their sort of in inability to um, work under extreme cold pressures, but they are heated. They, they, they are sort of rated for some cold pressures, but even that wasn't enough, um, which I thought was actually quite, um, quite stark. Um, yeah. And it's what's mixed uh, commentary is looking on Twitter. I'm just trying to like find like some like unbiased sources. And I was kind yeah. of just scrolling through and reading a bunch of Twitter threads and people replying. I was trying to get like some commentary on how people's like heat pumps were working in like minus 30 minus 40 conditions and and didn't seem overly positive um but i don't know anything about that he's gonna improve um i don't know anything about that um i did notice that um what was it? the other thing was interesting was um that daniel smith the prime minister of like alberta her commentary from December was exact was spot on was 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 quite prescient. I mean, in a sense, we're happy. You know, in a sense, it could be could have been a lot worse. Um, you know, it, it's it's a, it's great that Alberta was able to sort of ask beg you know ask their neighbors for that power and that people more people weren't killed. Um, we know in different jurisdictions when you do have severe outages of of uh, power that you know. It costs lives. Um, so I don't know, Steve. That, that's that was the other thing. I think no one was really there. Was there a response from Ottawa? Because I know there was a lot of, I don't want to use the word noise, but there was a lot of strong views coming out of the West when this was happening. I, I don't, I didn't see anything from Ottawa as a response. Did you guys Steve, see anything? Stephen Gilbo was tweeting about the people's carbon rebates being sent out in the mail. Oh, but wasn't there a CBC reporter? That comment that the Tesla works the best in cold weather. Or yeah, there was some ridiculous news article about. I have it right in front of me. Can I okay, read the headline? You can read it. You can read yeah, it. Go ahead. Electric cars are the best vehicle in frigid temperatures. Saskatchewan advocates say this is January thirteenth, twenty twenty four, um, and she goes and and then she says uh, they it heats up faster than any gas car I've ever had. It's more reliable. I mean, this just that's I, not, I can that let me chime in here. I've got I don't I've got that, that car they're talking about. I mean, it's nice because <laughs> you just pull out your phone and you can like you can like preheat your car, so like it's cool from that regard. But like the the battery, so I can tell you like if I parked my car outside here. And just you know, went to bed like you know, it gets down to minus ten at night. You'll wake up and your battery battery will be drained. You you lose a good chunk of your battery, so you almost have to like keep it like plugged in because when it gets cold, that battery just and and I can't imagine you know leaving a Tesla you know parked on the street in in minus forty weather in Calgary. You'd probably wake up with almost no battery. 
So there was a lot of stories that were circulating around people having to charge multiple times throughout the day because when they're leaving their car, you know, parked in the parking lot and then they come out from their lunch break to go somewhere else, you know, their batteries like has been drained significantly. So they got to go back and recharge. So yeah, it's it's a stupid article. It works the other way as well, which I thought was really cool. It's some I saw, I think it was another video that we were sharing about this gentleman. I think he was in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and uh, it takes more energy to charge it up in the first place, which I didn't realize was I, that was something new to me, where the resistance um, of this of the electricity that's coming through increases the lower the temperature. And so it takes an ex- way more energy from the grid to in- to charge it up to like a regular you know, it's 80 or whatever percent. And so I think he, he had like, uh, he did the math that some, you know, four or five charging places were, you know, the, the equivalent of, I can't remember how many houses you guys can find the video on, online, but I thought that was an interesting little factoid I didn't realize at all. So that, I mean, the reality the other- is like, if you're in like rural Alberta or Saskatchewan, like having like a fully electric vehicle is, is, is an absolute nightmare. I mean, yeah. if you're living in Vancouver and it's a relatively mild climate, I think it's a great car personally, but, um, it's kind yeah, of like that's... being a, you know, a 40 something, 50 something year old gentleman with, with action figures, you know, you're, you're going to get <laughs> mocked if you're in rural Saskatchewan with one of these things, uh, you know, you want to get picked last for the team. Uh, speaking of which, Rich, uh, some, some big news. Um, Alberta is now planning to build nuclear power plants to meet its long-term electrical demand. The first small modular, modular reactors, uh, will be built by 2028 is the it's the complete completion date for an Ontario project the company's also involved in so this is apparently coming there's still a lot of things they're partnering up with the Ontario power generation OPG uh, so they've signed an agreement to jointly assess the development and deployment of grid scale small modular reactors uh, of nuclear energy for Alberta this is great news this is great yeah. news, and it's also really good news for um, not just heating homes and charging electric vehicles. So it says it's also the construction really... of the first four SMRs in Ontario, so I guess they're going to Ontario first, will be completed yeah. by the end of 2028, and the unit will be online by the end of 2029. Um, is that so... reasonable? So you're looking at like five years to get this online and contributing? Yeah, they've, to been, the they've been building, they've been building um, uh, nuclear power plants in South Korea. In three to four years, I understand that you know the, the Koreans they can do anything when it comes to these kinds of these amazing projects. Um, but yeah, they, you can build them relatively fast now. It, all of the delays, and you know, Doctor Keeper will tell us this. Maybe we should have him on again one day. But um, most of the delays in building a nuclear power plant are not the physical pouring cement and you know tying up your little copper bows or whatever. It's 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 the regulatory framework that delays these projects, not the physical building of them. That's why I find it hard to believe in five years I have this up in well, yeah, Steve, what what enough. episode number will we be on at that time? <laughs> we'll we should do an over or under on whether it's probably be canceled by then. Yeah, it'll probably be canceled. That's right. <laughs> well it kind of ties over into the World Economic Forum Davos uh oh boy. conference. Oh pull you your hats. I will definitely take an invite. If you, if anybody from there is listening, I'll be happy to go to Davos. <laughs> There's great skiing around there. It's $250,000 for a ticket. Exactly. I will take a free ticket. I will definitely go to Davos. I mean, great. Apparently, there's like a rise in... Um... <laughs> anyway, I don't want to get in trouble. There's lots of what unsavory What would be your character. pickup line? Like, what, what would you say, right? Uh, oh, you know, I would... Need a, I mean, the fact starting you bought a ticket probably tells you you're rich enough. Yeah, that's right. 
I tell him I'd start an ESG fund or something. I don't know. Um, but anyway, we digress. There's lots of other okay. stuff going on. So let's, uh, let's tap that. So are we going to jump over to the, to Switzerland now, or are we going <laughs> to hang out with the CPI data? What, what's next on the list? Yeah, we're going to, well, if you want to, if you want to get your comments in on the, on the world economic forum, I'll, I'll let you digress. You have two minutes. <laughs> Look at you guys. One of these days, your your the light's gonna come on inside and say what. So every time, uh, you know, uh, January every year they have the World Economic <laughs> Forum, and if you notice, like everything is planned, so they have it on this week because this is the slowest data week of the year for U.S. data coming out. Hmm. Right? There's nothing that. on. Yeah, there's literally nothing this week except maybe one diffusion index. And that's about it, which means it's still a pretty good week for rich, right? Yeah. But uh, anyway, I think everyone by now, you know, they're familiar with the World Economic Forum and, you know, what they do and what, what they don't do. But two things uh, caught my attention. First of all, they came out with their global risk report. Did, did you guys see that? Yep. Yeah. Yes and no. Okay. Fine. Anyway, so they always like to have them listed as the number one risk for the world. And the number one risk this year for the world, uh, it isn't an economic risk. It isn't debt, inflation, war, climate, terrorist attacks. Do you know what it is? Disinformation. Disinformation. Yeah. It's like loony hour jokers, guys like us. But you think about it, like that is their number one risk that they're they have right now and on their list for the world. And uh, so this movement, because you know, we we had who do we have on here as a guest uh, a while back when we had that new law that was being passed in Canada about oh um, oh Professor uh, Geist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, from the yeah. from the University of Ottawa, Professor Geist. From the it, of Ottawa. Correct. So it, you know everything is sort of linked together, but you know the World Economic Forum this year because it's a huge election year, of course, especially for the Americans, and they are all over trying to control uh, what data is commun what data and messages and narratives are communicated, and so they're calling it misinformation and disinformation. And these guys, again, they have this ranked ahead of war, ahead of genocide, ahead of torture, he, ahead of climate. We know how much they like, but they know how much they love climate. I mean, we just talked about the Alberta experience. It, Keith, on that uh, list, what what would be your yeah. biggest risk? Well, just for, I mean, I think you have to be reasonable. Let, let's let's put aside the, you know. The, you know, war and, and and genocide and torturing and 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 that stuff. That's always that should be the number one concern all the time. Uh, but just from a pure economic basis, is the fact that if if we do have an economic downturn, and governments can no longer stimulate because they're already stimulating, you know, up up to their ears now. Because think about it, you look at the deficits that are being run here in Canada. I mean, in Canada, are we still going to be 40 billion plus, like in, in that range? That's what we're Yeah, but as estimated. a percentage of GDP, it's much lower. But anyway, but I see what your point is. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it's still like an enormous number. The Americans around 1.3 trillion and so forth. And there's a, a lot of pressure, you know, to try to get your fiscal house, you know, under control. And if you try to do that at the exact moment of time when your economy is rolling over, you know, it, it just... You know, accentuates the uh, the snowball. So for me, it would be on the whole debt 
economic side. But the other one, then, if you look at the geopolitical side, the real risk we have right now in the world, it was right now in the Middle East, guys. Uh, so what do you think, Steve? There's probably four or five or six fronts or you know, wars taking place over there. Some are getting a lot of news. Some are not getting a lot of news. Uh, for example, the uh, Iran was just, I think they uh, they sent missiles over to Pakistan over the weekend. Yep. And I don't mean they didn't deliver them, like they fired them. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where they went. But we have to pretend, if, if something really escalates over there, you know, oil can go from, what, like 75 bucks to 150 overnight. And as a central banker, what are you going to do then? Boy, it's going to be pretty hard to try to, you know, you can jack up rates all you want, and the price of oil will come down. What, what do you, what do you think, Steve? Like, what, what were you, uh, what would you have on top of your list? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think like the stuff that we've been carrying, uh, talking about here for for quite some time, which is dialing it back in for Canadians. Um, you know, I think in our narrow view, narrow mind of what most Canadians are probably looking at is saying, okay, the cost of living. And I think there's a lot of Canadians that are crossing their fingers and hoping and hope is obviously not a great strategy, but there's a lot of hope that the bank of Canada is going to start cutting rates and that, uh, you know, interest rates are going to come down and people can, you know, afford to carry their mortgages. Um, we've talked about, you know, over 60% of the, of the of the mortgage holders in Canada have not seen a payment increase yet. And there's a lot more coming up here in 2024 and 2025 and 2026. These are all very large mortgage renewal uh, years. And so, you know, looking at the data this week, um, Canada's CPI still, it's sticky. Um, Rich, I'm sure you've got the numbers there. I mean, I know like... We could talk about base year effects, and and I think it was you know part of the reason CPI came in higher on a year over year perspective was you know the impact of declining gasoline prices has kind of fallen out, so we're not really getting that base effect to really help out with the headline number. But I think core inflation also came in uh, stickier than expected, and so you know as the Bank of Canada looking at this, I'm not convinced that there's a a green light here to start cutting rates immediately. I don't know, Steve. That's, that sounds like some disinformation to me. You're trying to confuse people. <laughs> yeah, what really happened, Rich? What really happened with the numbers? Um, well, I mean, just off the top, I think I agree with uh, Steve. I think that is looking sticky. And I think it's going to keep them up a little bit at night. Um, you know, headline, it's just like, I think it's important. We haven't gone over this in a while, so maybe it's worth it. Um, you know, we have the headline number is now, you know, CPI... Um, so can't, oops, I'm looking at the wrong thing. So Canada's uh -oh. CPI. Sorry, rose. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Thank you. Yeah, Failed so it was, it was up 3.4% in December from a year ago. That was following a 3.1% increase a month earlier. Um, but two the two key yearly measures that are tracked closely by the Bank of Canada, uh, the, the trim and median core um, also increased, averaging 3.65%. Uh, that was revised upwards from from last month. So, I mean, long story short is like, if you're looking at core inflation, which is what the Bank of Canada is kind of keeping a close eye on, um, it's actually accelerating. So, that's and 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 one, I think, Rich, I think it's like shelter. Shelter inflation makes up added a full point, one yep. percentage point to CPI. And that's really a function of 
rents, rent growth remaining which, elevated. Which um, is reaccelerated, by the way. Remember, we had yeah. a couple of months where it was coming down, and then now it's back up again. So the rental component is is pushing that shelter component higher. And then you've got mortgage interest costs, which again are kind of self-inflicted by the Bank of Canada, but those remain at record highs. I think 20 yeah, 29, growth. 20. Yeah, sorry, 28. Yeah. That's right. The thing that so, I wanted I mean, to add, oh, sorry, go, go, go sorry, ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. The thing I was, wanted to add is like, you know, we we actually, you know, there's a couple of measures that I think are worth noting and they actually sort of bottomed, <laughs> not to make fun of Christina Freeland, but it's just sometimes you you, you can't, you gotta, you gotta hit the open net sometimes. Um, it's actually, it's funny because when she identified that the core inflation, so core means CPI, which is your total basket, excluding food and energy. Now you can argue about the wisdom of removing food and energy at a different, different on a different podcast, but that's what they do. Um, so we're removing food and energy. Um, it bottomed in, I think, June at 2.8%. And we've actually, since that point, we've actually now are starting to make higher lows so to speak so we we you know and, and so we bounced we got up to four then back down to 3.2 and now we're at 3.4 and so what you're seeing actually is this idea that you know three or three and a half is sort of the new two remember for almost a decade and um core inflation was basically two percent then we popped because of a bunch of stuff i don't want to i have you know I have say been, it, uh, say it, Rich, <laughs> say it. Because of COVID policies and stuff. Sorry, I have like uh, PTSD from, uh, anyways. So, but anyways, my point is that now we, you know, the argument really was, is it transitory? Yes or no? We were on record as saying, no, it wasn't. And this is sort of what we meant, which is you have the worries should be that we are now in a step function, one sort of notch higher. And the problem is if we stay there and the recent data is starting to, sort of pile up is suggesting that we are. It's the same for the US, by the way, which we can maybe talk about some other time. But now we're sort of, is three and a half the new two? And so if inflation expectations are like that, if you have problems with rent and shelter, which are big components, if you get a fill up from energy prices, which right now it's not happening, but who knows? Um, you have a situation where this idea that, and this is the idea that the Bank of Canada is gonna cut interest rates by you know 50 basis points by June or whatever it is, to bail out the housing market, very, very difficult to sort of wrap your head around that potential if we're at a situation where we're at 3.4, remember this is core and rising. Um, so that's, I think that's, uh, yeah. Can, can I Go comment? Ahead, There's an article today in the Globe and Mail and the article headline says, think rate cuts are coming soon? Be prepared for disappointment, says CIBC's <laughs> Benjamin Tal. So I click on this article. I'm like, wow, this guy's probably maybe thinking like us. There's no cuts. Um, and so he says um, that, you know, inflate cutting in, you know, March, April is going to be too soon. But basically, he sees the Bank of Canada starting to cut in the second half of the year by roughly 150 basis points in 2024. And I'm like, well... That seems kind of. I don't of like think a there are enough meetings available, uh, <laughs> but it was kind of interesting. Well, that, well that's what so, I was thinking. I was like, "That's kind of a misleading headline," because I was like, "That that actually seemed like pretty aggressive." 150 basis points of cut this year. With are they cord. still sponsoring the Lunar? Are they? Yes, we love them. We want them to sponsor them. We love well, them. They're not right now. Newspaper ever. Not right now, but may so. Sometimes mainstream media that the headline of the article you know, they don't reconcile sometimes, but like, like something else like. So have a think about this for a second. So you know, the, the month of December was a it's a pretty good 
month for a lot of financial markets. You know, the U.S. dollar sold off, but everything else, you know, went went higher pretty aggressively. And, you know, it, it was what it was. Since then, you know, we're two weeks now into the new year. And uh, just to give you a, a, a view of what's happened with the expectation for the Bank of Canada. So at the end of December, um, markets, not what strategists or economists were forecasting, what markets were pricing, was that the Bank of Canada was going to cut by 150 basis points by one year out. So in December of of 24. Now here we are, what, two, 18 days into, because this is Thursday, right? You guys are, everyone's listening yep. on a Friday. Yeah, 18 days. Yeah. First first joke of the year, hey? How did that come? It's great. Was it flat? Yeah. It was a really yeah. good flat. one. It's I kind of it. expected at this point. Yeah. Steve has that beautiful smile, hey? He still still comes out. But back to the Bank of Canada. So two weeks ago, it was 150 basis points being expected or priced in. Now it's 100. So what in the name of God changed within an 18-day period to have expectations? And the same thing happened with the Fed as well. Even the Europeans are out this week, you know, talking down expectation for, for rate cuts. So this goes back to the whole... Hey, you know, everyone was pretty excited to have 150 basis points of cuts because you know the mortgage would come down and stuff like that. And I think we commented that you don't want to see that happening because if it is, it means something. You know, there's a severe dislocation in the economy. So maybe now is not a bad thing. Maybe we do sort of, you know, inflation stays in that three, three and a quarter percent range. Not a lot of activity from the Bank of Canada, but the best. I still continue to believe that the best outcome for our economy and, and markets is that, you know, we, we had to struggle for a bit, but it's it's a very slow grind and there's nothing traumatic happening. So I think what the CIBC uh, article that was referenced, Steve, uh, it, it seems to me like to call for maybe an unpleasant experience in the second half of the year. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I, I definitely appreciate a lot of Benjamin Tal's work. I think he's one of the better economists. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's still got 150 basis points. So, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, he gets... But there's been a, in the U, on the U.S. front, just to, sorry, just to um, wrap it up a little bit, just on the U.S. front, there's been some really positive consumer data, which is, and some positive hard data. So, you know, there's um, there's something called the Dallas Fed, like weekly economic indicator, which includes a bunch of sort of daily, weekly stuff. It's tough to get macro daily stuff. But anyway, they aggregate a bunch of information and that's starting to rise. Um, you know, the U.S. consumer is just not as bad as I would have said six months ago or a year ago. I, I got that really wrong. Um, despite the fact that you have increasing delinquency rates, interest rates are squeezing the housing sector, um, you know, uh, used car prices are down because of all different reasons. So lots of different indicators are suggesting the U.S. consumer should be weak. And it's not. It's proving me and a you know bunch of other people wrong. And so that's that's also sort of the other side to that coin. You know, you have the inflation component in Canada, which is maybe pushing up the getting rid of the cuts here. But in the U.S., I would say it's more of the strong macro data that's doing the job. Has that been what like think, the big with, with ahead, Bank Keith. of Canada guys? Yeah, we have four meetings in the second half of next of this year. That's it. There's only four. So yeah. we have uh, July, Sep, October, and and December, and that's it. So What's if, the first meeting gonna... of this year? March, isn't it? And yeah. January 24th. Next oh, week, guys. I mean, we have a Twinkie right bet off. coming up. <laughs> first Twinkie bet of the year. 
People are excited. Place your bets. We're going to do what now? One, two, three. No cut. No cut. <laughs> no, I mean, that's all going to go no cut, too. That's just. You guys easy. waited for me to go first. That's pretty lame. <laughs> It'll get more okay. exciting, though, as you get into what? March is the next one, Keith? Yeah, March the 6th. That's then no, go- not even then. It's kind of. You know, it's, it's increasing a bit, but April is really when they're pricing in. Uh, no, I take that back, guys. Uh, right now, it's it's June when you get the first uh, cut Expected of 25 basis points. But again, this yeah. keeps changing on like a weekly basis. It's, it's changing As... by the hour. It's like rich. I don't know what that means. What would that even be as a joke? <laughs> I don't know. Mean anything. I know. It doesn't mean okay. anything. Yeah. A bunch um, of babbling turds over here. Yeah, that's I right. know. Three of them. Three and a half. So, but has this been the most surprising thing so far? Is just like the resiliency of the US data uh, or the US economy? I just think there's been so many macro commentators on Twitter and, you know, Bloomberg, CNBC, you know, some, some, there's definitely some, quite a few of them, I'd say, are really smart, respected uh, individuals that have just been calling for, the U.S. economy, sort of doom and gloom, um, recession, hard landing, and it just hasn't happened. Yeah, I think what what is happening is because there's been so much stimulus coming from the Treasury down the U.S. You know, with, with the deficits, and same thing up here in Canada as well. But of course, though in Canada, we you know we got the population growth story. Uh, you know, that's helping keep aggregate data up. But I think, though, in, in the U.S., you know, a, a lot of the rate hikes by the Fed ha- has been offset by the f- fiscal stimulus, you know, coming from the from the Treasury and, and Janet Yellen. So I think all these smart guys, you know, they're they're going to be right. But I think things are just been delayed a little bit. But of course, this is an election year, so I, I can tell Treasury will not be becoming a bit tighter with with the old wallet, so to speak. Uh, traditionally, the central bank sort of steps aside. So with the Fed, like unlike in Canada, you know, we're talking about rate cuts in the second half of the year. You know, the last opportunity maybe for the Fed. Do you have the Fed schedule there, Rich? I do. I do. Sorry. It yeah, is. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. Um, I think the first meeting is the end of Jan, then March, May, June, July, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's... Um... September 18th. Yeah. That's probably the last live meeting, you know, for the Fed. And right now, markets are pricing in uh, 100 basis points in in cuts, if you can figure that out. Mm. And, uh, but the point is, you know, the Canadians, you know, we can cut in the second half. I don't, I don't know how we get 150 unless if we do get 150, it means, man, you know, the, the shitter's full, right? Something broke <laughs> in, in Canada. For the Americans, have the opposite story because the Fed can't be seen to be helping the political side going in. Um, and at the same time, the Treasury, they're absolutely going to be stimulating as much as they can to try to do the opposite of what the Fed is not trying to do. And then let's just say we get a, uh, just say Trump wins in, in the fall. Uh, he he kind of likes economic stimulus, so kind of, kind, kind of. <laughs> so yeah, it's gonna be. I mean, it's gonna be flowing then in in twenty five, 
And uh, so then maybe, you know, it, it kind of pushes everything out another little bit. But, you know, where we continue to live in this world of, you know, economic and monetary extremes, and I don't see it ending, you know, not for a while, which means like incredible volatility. So I think people know, like the S&P was, what, down 20% in 22, 21 maybe, it was up 24 in 23. It's a hard way to make a living. But I, Keith, I mean, as a macro guy yourself and as as, as a portfolio manager, I mean, you, you probably enjoy the volatility, no? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I, I mean, just maybe from like... a, a pure interest. So, I, you know, I've been managing money for a while. And uh, one of the most boring periods of my life was from like 03 to 08. I was out living on an island. It was five years. So back then, the American GDP was 5% plus. Like there was, there was no risk anywhere. You literally just just bought a bunch of stocks and stuff and then, you know, Hondos. went to the beach. <laughs> then you just went to the beach and hung out. And, um, you know, that's not a bad way to make a living for a while. But then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that during those great days, there was a, a few things building underneath, you know, which was, you know, these zero rates and variable rate mortgages and, and stuff but like that. But as a that. professional money manager, I mean, your job is ultimately to manage volatility, right? It's to manage like large drawdowns. And so, yeah, you know, if you get this whipsaw in the S&P, um, yeah, I think it, I would imagine it separates the good managers from the bad managers and just the ability to sort of manage risk for yeah. clients. I mean, a, a professional manager should outperform on the downside, but then they'll get left behind on the upside. You know, that's the way it works. But, you know, we, I think, I think there's so much risk out there right now, Steve, that uh, there are, there are some things that are pretty like the oil story that we talked about there a few minutes ago. I mean, it, it doesn't mean it has to happen. But if it does happen, you better have stuff in your portfolio to protect you from it. Because if not, as an investor or anyone, you're going to say, what the heck? Everyone knew the Middle East could blow up. Like, when else have you had five or six fronts happening at the same time? Totally. Yeah. So we have these things going on, taking place. What about you, Rich? What do you see in that space? Well, I just think there's a, two, two points I think are important to you know, give people some context, maybe they don't know, but there's been a huge um, sort of manufacturing resurgence in America. Um, and I think that, you know, for for all the criticism that um, that Joe, that John, Donald Trump got for, you know, the America first doctrine, I think it's really important that maybe some people don't know, but the Biden administration has effectively taken that strategy, that economic strategy, because that's what it is. It's not a political strategy. It's an economic strategy. And basically, you know, put lipstick on it and a marketing team behind it and um, the legislative force of the American sort of it was a bipartisan sort of, you know, bipartisan strategy to increase the manufacturing capacity and bring home a lot of that um, sort of a lot of that. Yeah, back to America and by extension, Mexico, by the way. So something we don't talk about enough on this podcast is emerging markets and sort of what's going on. Well, Mexico has been a major, major re recipient of sort of that friend shoring, the manufacturing um, sort of gross fixed capital formation, which is the technical name for investment, um, sort of at the national income account level, has absolutely gone parabolic in Mexico. Remember, Mexico's uh, economy is already very integrated into the U.S. economy, whether it's through um, rail for commodities or road for, you know, manufacturing and car manufacturing, all that stuff. And the same sort of things happened in the U.S. I mean, if you look at 
I'm trying to pull it up here quickly. But if you look at sort of manufacturing um, gross fixed capital formation in the U.S., it was 120 um, billion, um, and now it's gone up to 109. So you know you've almost had a 60 percent increase. So yeah, almost a 60 percent increase in the non-residential sort of capex for manufacturing structures in America, and that that is basically one of the biggest year-on-year year increases basically ever since you know since basically when they started gearing up for world war ii it, this is we're not building tanks here we're building manufacturing plants so you know a lot unlike i think in canada where a lot of deficit spending has been consumption based which i will never support a lot of that deficit spending in america has really been to support infrastructure um and manufacturing and i think that that makes a that makes a huge huge difference um that, that, that would, and so that's supportive growth etc cetera, etc cetera. So growth is still still relatively sticky. Um, you know, it's growth seems obviously a lot more resilient in the U.S., which we've talked about many many times. Particularly when you've got a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. Um, Canada's is still in this per capita recession, um, yeah. and so there's a lot of rich. There's a lot of good data out this week. It's funny we highlighted a tweet from you from um, twenty nineteen on my Twitter account there. Twenty nineteen. You... That's amazing, Rich. That's yeah, really so cool. well, it's funny because I, you know, there was an article out. I think it was this week from from all the mainstream media that was saying, you know, the federal government was was warned two years ago by their own uh, uh, policy staffers that immigration was going to overwhelm, you know, housing and infrastructure, and they ignored it. And I says, well, that, they had two years. I mean, they could have followed Rich and they would have had a four year head start, but uh, instead they chose to listen to nobody. And uh, you know, we've been dealing with this, and so. National Bank put out a, a really good report this week, which was kind of making its rounds, uh, showing that Canada's housing supply deficit reached a new record uh, of only one housing start. So one housing start for every 4.2 people entering the working age population. So it's one housing start for every 4.2 people entering the working age population, um, the lowest basically they've got on record. So uh, it, it is a mess. Um, and so it's interesting. We're going to see how this sort of plays out with, with interest rates, mortgages, sticky inflation, but it's certainly making the Bank of Canada's job much more difficult. And uh, is, I would say is certainly supporting the housing market. Prices should have fallen considerably more. It's funny because, you know, the, the focus has been on the supply side, you know, build more units and things like that. And now you, you start to see more headline stories focus on the demand, you know, looking at population growth. So one, one story this morning here uh, I see on, on Bloomberg, uh, Trudeau must stop the flow of asylum seekers, says Quebec leader, the premier of Quebec. It's like they're jumping up and down. And one of the solutions for Quebec is to send them buses so they can send the asylum seekers <laughs> over to Ontario. And then you have the mayor of Toronto. Um, I think she's also asking for buses so she can zip them, you know, maybe over to Alberta. So it, it's it's a mess, guys. It's it's a real mess. And you know, all of a sudden, everyone is pointing fingers at each other. It's the university's fault. You know, it's the Fed's fault. It's the provinces and, and so forth. But it, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. You need a solution. And the solution can't be treating the symptoms. Right? You right. need to make the dramatic, hard decisions. 
And I don't think anyone's willing to do it. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit further because there was a um... wait a second, wait a second. The okay, asylum seekers okay. thing, the asylum seekers thing is a red herring, just so we're clear here. It's like a fraction of the total number. Anyway, sorry, keep going. The um so so again, just to remind everybody, Sean Fraser is the liberal MP. He's in charge of he's the housing minister. But a year ago, he was the immigration minister, and he was the immigration minister for for quite a few years. And so he was interviewed this week. I don't this, know. Was this that... sounds like the beginning of a joke or something, right? Yeah, it's, you can't make you can't script this stuff. But anyway, so he was, I guess, like you know, the, of course, you know, the liberal government's doing all these, um, you know, photo ops and and media spectacles around. Hey, you know, we just helped get this, you know, thirteen housing units uh, started in, you know rural Ontario and, you know, the accelerator money is starting to kick in. So they're doing all these sort of, you know, conferences. And anyways, they did one with Sean Fraser. And then the reporter basically asked him, you know, like, well, what's going on here with the immigration stuff? And, and he was like, yeah, you know, immigration was basically, you know, was running too hot. It was, you know, people were manipulating and taking advantage of the system. And I was like, well, you were the guy that was running that system just, you know, 18 months ago. And now you're, in here trying to fix housing, but you, so we're coming back kind of full circle, but anyways, there was an article out this week um, from the Toronto star, but saying that Ottawa may quote may limit international students in three provinces. This is per a C, uh, CBC news article who was quoting a senior government source uh, that unnamed source specifically cited uh, Ontario, British Columbia, and Nova Scotia. So, the federal government is now looking um, after all this backlash and finally figuring it out, you know, four years too late that they are going to consider, consider limiting international students in those three provinces. Um, so we'll see. But that's, so what uh, could go wrong with, with that strategy? Anyone? Bueller? I'm so curious about what you're going to say. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I've taken a bit of a, a deeper dive into the the, the finances of, of universities. I just find it really interesting because they don't run a, a real P&L, you know, a profit and loss statement. Uh, however, you know, the average university, their operating budget is subsidized anywhere from, you know, 35 to 60 percent you know, by the provincial government. And, you know, you you know, there's always this conversation about you know, university job is to educate people, is not to be a job factory and, and things like that. But yet, you always have to operate within your budget. I mean, that's that's all you can do. And people who understand the finance finances behind university and the revenues, you know, there's three. There's one revenue source primarily. You know, I'm sure there's a few others in between. But it's you know, it's you're looking at tuition, and then that tuition is broken under three kinds of students. You have the uh, local in-province students. They pay the lowest tuition. Then you have out-of-province students. And let's just say their tuition is 50% higher, so 1.5 times higher. And then you have the international student, and their tuition can be, people can correct me, but depending on the school, it can be you know four to eight times higher than what the local kid is paying. So I, I know that universities have increasingly shifted their focus to trying to attract international students to come in because they need the money to try to get the budget to look at least a little bit better. 
And if the universities now in, in those three provinces have to uh, stop the flow of international students come in, all of a sudden, you know, their budgets get blown out and then the provinces have to pick up the tab on it. And the provinces will then go back to Ottawa and say, hey, you got to help us with this because you created the challenge to start with. So it, it's not an easy solution any way we look at it. But again, dramatic changes have to take place as long as we all agree and recognize that uh, when, when, you know, if you're normally growing the country, I'd say what, 400,000 is the average we're doing, 250 to 400 maybe? Well, no, I mean, Canadian government, they set permanent residency targets. Um, so how many permanent residents they want to basically bring in and approve. Um, and that number, I believe for this year is set at like 460,000 or 480,000. Anyways, it's supposed to get up next year, 2025. I believe it's supposed to hit 500,000. That's the target. And then they've said they were going to, they're going to sort of cap it at that 500 K for, for the next but population year. growth over the last two to three years. It's been over a million. So it has yeah, been. So, well, so I'll give you the data right now. So yeah. for 20, for 2023, as of right now, we only have the data for Q1 to Q3. So we don't have the Q4 data out just yet. But as it stands right now, we have added just a shade over a million people in the first three quarters. Um, and of that percentage, 371,000 have been permanent residents. So we're kind of more or less on on pace for that target of 160,000 or whatever. But we're, the, the federal government doesn't set any targets for non-permanent residents, which is like international students and foreign workers. There's no target. So it's basically just like, we don't, we don't set any targets. We just let whoever wants to come in can come in. And so we've added 654,000 non-permanent residents in the first three quarters of this year. Um, what were we back in say 18 and 19? I don't uh, know so, the numbers. Okay, yeah. So the, the total, total, not not like breaking it apart. So this is from Mike Moffat, who's been doing some re really good research on this. Um, so from 2017 to 2022, um, the the three quarter average, because again, we're just going to use the three quarters because you know we don't have Q4 yet. So the average between 2017 and 2022, we were averaging. Uh, during that period, we had about 138,000 non-permanent residents in those first three quarters. And then between 1999 and 2016, we were averaging 54,000. So we went from like 54,000 non-permanent residents to 138,000. And this year we're at 654,000. Yikes. I don't know, Rich. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean again, like it's, we're not using hindsight here. I mean, this is pretty simple stuff that if you're going to increase the number of people in a market, economy, population, if they, they have to eat, they have to live, they have to be educated, they need healthcare, they need to drive on roads, they need internet, you, you name it. And again, I just don't, understand how this strategy change i think it's a philosoph philosophical change and it has been directed to us by another group that wears tinfoil hats and everything but without having investment in these other 
capital investment areas that were needed. It's absolutely shocking and embarrassing that it has not happened and not even a response for that. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I think it's hard to argue against like, oh, you know, they just made a mistake. You know, at this point, it seems like, well, this is so obvious that it, it, it seems intentional at this point. I mean, I like to give them the benefit of the doubt and say it wasn't, but. I mean, think that's intentional is like when a, uh, Yeah, but like if a hockey referee makes a mistake and someone loses the game, okay, whatever. But I mean, th- this is a pretty significant mistake. I mean, just you just drive down your city and you see people without homes. Like that's that's a pretty severe mistake to make. Uh, kids not being educated properly, going from you look at the ER wait times anywhere across the country. Like, again, these. It's, well, it's not again. A good it's coming situation. It's coming full circle, right, Rich? To your to your earlier point, which is you bring in all these people. There's nowhere for them to go, so they compete for rental housing because we can't build enough housing, and they drive up rents. So you create sticky CPI shelter inflation. You force interest rates higher, and the Bank of Canada can't cut rates because they can't get inflation back down to target. And so, yeah, we were on this pretty early and I think I'm happy we banged the drum. I think just a couple of quick things. No one is against immigration. That's dumb. Immigration is good. It's about having a plan. I disagree with Keith. I think in the sense that I don't think the mistake was the idea. The mistake is once the data is clear that you've made a mistake, not having the testicular fortitude to pivot and to adjust those numbers is really, to me, where the ideology gets in the way of doing what's right for your citizens and who you're paid to take care of. And it's the same. It's gonna, it's going to be the same bullshit with the electric vehicles and renewable energy shit. It's only when someone dies or people die or you know a fleet of ambulances that are electric don't work to meet emergency needs it's only when it is the whites of the eyes of the problems are like confound these politicians who are making decisions not on pragmatism which is how basically everyone else lives their lives and makes decisions but on dogma and it's just not a good strategy um and i and i and i behoove the next fleet of prime ministers to to take this as you know as a sort of advice as caution that they don't do the same thing because i don't think this is you know there's i don't think it's a you know i don't think one particular side of the political spectrum owns this kind of stuff but to to not once this was understood that there was something clearly wrong in the immigration system this is two years ago i'm sure we knew and I'm sure, and and this idea that you know it, it's discreet, where someone raises their hand two years ago and says, "Hey, we've got a problem," and then no one says anything for two years, and then the CBC catches up to the loony hour and says, "Hey, that's bullshit." People like Ben Rabideau have been outlining this for at least eighteen months, explicit, he, detailed. He testified. He testified he, in. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, he testified in, in the House of Commons there. Um, and yeah, like a couple of years ago. And I think I know I know for a fact Christopher Freeland was on that call with him. And he said, like he walked through the numbers, he pulled out his charts, and I was like, I do research for a living, and like this is your population stuff is out of control and just kind of got swept under the rug. And it's like, you know, here we are finally, like a year and a half, two years later, we're like there's so much media pressure and political pressure, and the polls aren't very good. 
that they're now actually like, oh yeah, ooh, oops, um, we might fix it with these potential solutions. The mistake is not making political experiments. That that's what all political parties, in a sense, do. You know, whether it's the the guy from Argentina who's doing, he's effectively at the beginning of a political experiment. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. He's confident. You know, some people see him. He's they like may trust him. They think he what he's doing is the right thing. But they don't. We don't know. And so it's it's when you have data, clear, obvious data that your political experiment is going awry, the inability or unwillingness to change your mind is to me, that is ultimately the most frustrating thing. That is the, ultimately the mistake. It's not the willingness to try new things or to say that Canada, we're going to do something different. It's when you're presented with glaringly obvious data, irrefutable data that you've effed up. To not not be willing to change to me is, I would say, the more nefarious part of this whole process. Whether it's electric vehicles we're seeing in Alberta, whether it's you know the wind farms in this place, or or whatever it is, it's just that's I find that just very. So I, I cannot it, forgive somebody for that. I mean, it's a very good point uh, that we're both making now. But is I'd love to see how the sausage is made. You know, so they get. <laughs> Yeah, but you receive, I don't mean you guys, but, you know, as, as a as a government, you receive the information, you listen to everyone, and was a decision made to either that, hey, that the data from Ben, as an example, was, was wrong, incorrect, or is that, uh, you know, we're going to get so many other benefits from this policy change that it will overwhelm that challenge that we could maybe have in two or three years. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't know the answer, yeah. of course, but again, hindsight it usually works out pretty well in in a lot of different uh, markets. But in the world, I, I call it demographics. You know, Dem demographics—they're slow moving. You never really see the turn in anything. But when when you have big numbers of of people moving into a market or out of another market, it, it's going to have, it, it's pretty easy to know that, hey, there's a big change coming up. Okay, we need to be prepared for the change. And I mean, may, maybe it's fair or not fair to be, you know, critiquing this, but uh, in Canada right now, we, we have a pretty serious problem because the, the problem that hasn't happened yet is that we do, and you know, like, oh yeah, you know, Boomer's saying this again, if we hit a hard recession, boy, oh boy, it's going to really screw over uh, a lot of people across the country. And it hasn't happened yet. But we're, I mean, you're looking at the data out there, it's starting to roll over quite a bit. I think for a lot of Canadians, though, it certainly feels recessionary. Um, yeah. I don't think this is sure. by any means a strong economy. Um, but to your point on the housing front and population stuff, um, you know, you can kind of see the pressure it's putting on on the market. So, the national house price index, and again, I know you can't use a national house price because you know every market's a little bit differently. We're seeing Toronto sell off, obviously, a lot more than places like Calgary or Vancouver or whatever. Um, but nationally, our house price index from the peak is down twelve. I think it's twelve percent, uh, twelve or fourteen percent. So, you know, a little bit of a price correction there. Rents over the last two years though are up twenty two percent. Uh, from that's from recent data from rentals.ca that's amalgamated by urban nation, which is a very good research firm. Uh, so rents are up 22% across the country over the last two years. 
um, in terms of, you know, bringing in a million people a year for the last couple of years. So a million people each year, the, the all-time record high for housing completions in a year is 270,000. Is this housing units or housing like single family home? So I units. always ask that. Like, okay. So it'll be like one condo unit, like a one bedroom or a two bedroom condo. Like that's one unit. Um, and, you know, whether it's one townhouse or one, it's like we're just amalgamating all the new houses or doors that came onto the market. It's uh, 270,000 is the all time record high. And again, if you can do the math, if you're bringing in a hundred thousand or a million people a year, it's just, just not enough. I mean, you, so the household composition in Canada, which is basically says how many people live in your typical dwelling, it's 2.1. So whether that's a one, like a couple sharing a one bedroom condo or an older couple that's living in a single family house, 2.1 is the your average household composition. I think that's actually up over the last number of years. Um, so if you can kind of run the numbers backwards and say, well, if we're averaging 2.1 people per house, how many households do we need if we bring in a million people a year? So the number is closer to half a million. There's no way in hell you can ramp up housing starts or completions anywhere remotely close to 500,000. Like your record is 270,000. So maybe, maybe, maybe you through technology advancements and cheap capital and government incentives for financing, maybe you can get that up to 350,000. Maybe. Um, right. The other thing I'd like to note is, you know, people people often say, oh, you look at household composition uh, and it's 2.1. If we actually had, like, let's say we had more abundant housing or cheaper house prices, do you think more people would go out on their own? Like, I, th I always look and say, how many millennials, for example, are living in, like, their parents' basement? It's not by choice. Or it's having kids? Yeah, because they don't have an option because the housing is so unaffordable that they're like you're getting more and more multi generational housing, um, and so I always push back on people that say, "Well, you know, it's, it's not a supply issue." It's like the dumbest argument I've ever seen. Like, yeah, we know demand has been excessively um, created through immigration, cheap interest rates, loose credit, uh, foreign money. But uh, there's no question that underpinning all of this in the grand scheme of things is you still don't have enough housing. You will own more thing? nothing. You will <laughs> own nothing and you will be happy. That's where we're going, guys. That's exactly where we're going. Okay. Well, I'm going to own something. Um, can I add one more thing? Just to, to, just one more thing. And Pen, Ben Rabideau, I think he articulated this better than I'm going to. Um, so you can go find his tweet. But, a tweet. Um, but I think... What we're doing inadvertently is creating a we're, we're stoking anti-immigration policy. And I find that the saddest part about this whole thing, because, you know, I think had and, and I don't think that the Liberal Party does, realizes sort of what they're doing. And maybe this is a political statement and it's an economic show and maybe I should you know, we should move on. But what they're effectively doing is because this problem is so acute and is so obvious from like where it's coming from and how long it's manifested and where and how it's manifesting, that you're basically stoking a, a generation of people who are not going to be as welcoming and are not going to be as um, open to the next wave of 
um, immigrants like my father and my mother who come to this country because it's the best country in the world to try to make something for their kid. And I think that that's one of the saddest things that that's coming out of all this, you know, instead of instead of having a sensible policy that's flexible with housing supply, with ER times, with schools, with infrastructure, whatever, the dogma that's pushed this on is actually going to have a blowback. And that blowback to me, which is I'm really sad, you can already start to see it in the Twitter comments and CBC comment section, the blowback's coming. It's stoking this insular anti-immigration anti-immigration sentiment, which I think is ultimately going to be bad for Canada. And so that's that's I don't know that's the part that makes you really sad. I had to share it. Yeah, Keith, any any final comments on that, or is the show over? <laughs> We're getting oh, we close. Got... We're getting close. You paying attention over there? Have, yeah, I am. I have another World Economic Forum comment. Man, you're all say. over these guys. Did you pay for the live stream? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, you know, I mean, we I think we've had a really uh, a really important conversation today about what what has really triggered a lot of the, the distresses here in Canada. Um and, and again, I think everyone should be aware of that and they should have more conversations with it, you know, with people they know. Uh from a, a higher picture level or view. Uh, I continue to follow this World Economic Forum narrative uh, with a lot of interest. And again, there are just some really odd and weird things coming out of this group. And it is absolutely uh, going to affect us. So, so the last one, which I'll just introduce the idea and we can talk about it another time. But um, Ursula von der Leyen, she's yeah, the yeah, president fine. of the European Council, the EU, yeah, President of the European Council, unelected, of course, she's been appointed. Uh, she's she's very important in a lot of power. But her whole opening speech at the in, in Davos was all about the world digital ID system that, that's being modeled by the WHO, not the Stones, the WHO. Uh, and this is part of the uh, the World Health Organization pandemic agreement. You know, this, this is what's being signed on to everyone. But, but she was just raving uh, about this. And uh, she specifically said... Uh, she said she think about it. Fifty one countries across four continents adopted this for free, and it will it facilitated our ability to control mobility our ability to control mobility during health threats or any other threats we may have going forward. And remember last week, you know, introduced the uh, this, the narrative that uh, the Canadians, which have been the current uh, Liberal Party, you know, they want to have climate risk introduces as one of the risks here at with with the who so a, again we're going down this personal id road where if you don't get your central bank digital currency they're going to try to do it another way and i know some people smile at this they go ah that, that's that's a bit <laughs> odd but we are um guys we're, we're going down a very dangerous slope here and this is something that you should be concerned about and it's going to be one of these hindsight stories. So five years from now, when we're on episode 700, whatever it is, <laughs> we're going to look back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we talked about that. And now we're not allowed to talk about it anymore. But again, follow hey. these narratives closely. Speaking of that, um, Keith, I know you're a big pizza guy and, and, and you know, talking about digital ID registrations and stuff. 
Remember that story with um, was the New York pizzerias that were like, you know, they make pizza in these wood burning ovens. Tell me about, uh, I, I, you're going to make me upset. I know what you're talking about. It's coal, coal fired ovens because they, that's what you get a, yeah, I know what you mean. Coal. Coal. Okay. Well, they were trying to shut them down in New York. Right. And there was this huge. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so Mon- well, uh, Montreal is now uh, rich. Uh, is is coming out with something proposal similar. No, um, it wasn't Montreal. Keep going. It wasn't Montreal. Keep going. Okay. Well, anyways, it's the federal environment ministry because I guess Montreal's been dragging their feet. Montreal area politicians have been stalling on the issue uh, regarding uh, forcing wood burning businesses to report emissions. So if you are the federal environment ministry is now looking into whether some restaurants and bakeries that cook food in wood-fired ovens should be reporting their total air pollution emissions to the National Pollutant Release Inventory each year. So they, they're they uh, they're looking to implement that. I just think, like, man, we've talked about it on the show, and, like, it's even, uh, you know, who's out, like, in the last week? It was uh, film, former, uh, you know... Um, Minister there, uh, Bill Morneau, who's even said, "Hey, listen, Canada's got a productivity problem. We got to solve this. We got to figure it out. Our productivity stinks, and we're falling behind." And I'm just thinking, I was like, "Man, as like a business owner, could you imagine just like you're a busy guy, gal, and you're running this pizzeria, and you got to pick up the phone and you got to spend all this time reporting your." wood burning air pollution to some large government bureaucracy like how productive is that what about the bagel consumers centrally me <laughs> who <laughs> want to eat proper freaking bagels listen people don't understand the only bagels in the world exist in two from two stores St. Viators which is the best and a close second is Fairmont you can find those in the plateau of Montreal those stores run 24 hours a day. They sell beautiful, delicious bagels and not bread with holes in it, bagels. And they're made with wood-fired ovens. And they've been doing that since the 50s or whatever. It started with some Jewish families from Eastern Europe. They came over after the war. They didn't know what to do. So they started selling these glorious, glorious bagels, the greatest things that have ever been made ever. And they need to be made with wood ovens. Now, people have tried to do it with gas ovens, which is also probably going to be banned soon enough, or with electric ovens. But you just, it's not the same. There's a flavor profile. Keith knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, it's an outrage. It's 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 insane. It's an outrage. Um, you know, we talked about how many coal fire power plants China built last year, like 402 under construction. It's insane to me that they would ever threaten the single greatest food stuff ever known to man and uh there's you know i was feeling pretty good this morning now i'm feeling very very sad about this as if those banning those montreal (laughs) bagel outlets is going to make any iota of a difference it's such a farce honestly you're more outraged over a bagel versus your digital id with your banking and everything on it yeah of course i already have a digital passport i have all of my information is online um he's drinking the kool-aid it's not the uh, same. Every single th- it's not the I, same. Not every, one. Not even close to being the same. Uh, okay, Someone anyway. can hit the switch to prevent you from traveling 
to prevent you from buying, prevent you from doing this or that. I'm just saying. Now, I, mind I mean, you, I do love a good bagel as well. I agree with you. Could you imagine on this guy goes? It's to all the bagel tied tr- together. It's all tied together here. You just have he to goes to the bagel shop angle. and his uh, digital credit card doesn't work because it's uh, that bagel's not environmentally friendly. I, just, I feel like we're being punked. Like, there's like what? How many cars are there in million? Uh, how many cars are there in Canada? What the conservative like 25 million cars? You know. Uh, like one, like, I don't know if you guys know about like oil tankers or just tankers in general that, you know, we're, for, for example, um, you know, right now we didn't talk about the Middle East blowing up because the Hootsie rebels are putting, you know, the squeeze on the Red Sea, which is forcing bulkers, which is carry, you know, commodities, container ships and oil tankers to take a lap around the Cape of Good Hope. I mean, burning marine diesel is like literally the worst thing you could possibly do for the environment. No one seems to care about that shit, but bagels, ba- I just... Yes, you're right. I'm far more upset about bagels than I have a digital ID or even central bank digital currencies. Bagels are a source of life, Keith. And without bagels, you have nothing. Keith, aren't you you cook wood are you uh wood burning pizza at home? I thought you had like a fancy no, stove. No, not 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 wood burning. No. I, I do have a gas fired uh outdoor pizza oven. And um but but in, in the pizza world, you know, you you want to get about 900 degrees Fahrenheit of heat. And there's only two ways to really do that. One is with coal, another one is with, with wood burning. And both of them produce a slightly different heat with a different flavor on it. And, you know, food is beautiful. No matter, you know, what culture you're from, what cuisine you're making or tasting or drinking, everyone loves food. It brings everyone together and you get a, a pretty strong reaction if you can't get <laughs> your pizza or, you know, whatever. And uh, so there's lots of good points here today. So let us know in the comments how you feel about it. Well, I'm glad I stirred the pot to end that one. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, you're gonna, I'm gonna. What do they? You know what they do? What did the Simpsons do? They like tied themselves to the tree to prevent the the forest being bowled over. I'm gonna tie myself to the Saint Fiator bagel. <laughs> I'm gonna go. Do you guys remember strike. the end? Remember the guys? Remember the end of Men in Black? Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, remember the end? Like it zooms out from the city and Earth yeah. and the universe, and is you know it, it is because you made a comment a few minutes ago. You you said maybe we're being punked or yeah, pranked. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe you know we're just a snow globe, and someone has said, "Hey, let's do this to rich in Montreal yeah. now." Time to shut it down, Steve. That's enough. Shut it down. God bless you, Montreal Bagler families. Bagel? Bagler families? Bagels. 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 They're the best. Yeah, they're good people. I think it's babbling turds. <laughs> That's a good place to wrap it up. As always, appreciate your support. And we'll see you next week.